four. And it's a running narrative, so it's not going to take long. And we're going to divide it into three sections. The first section we're just going to call pre-crucifixion events. Pre-crucifixion events. The second section will be the crucifixion itself, which is very short. And then the last section will be post-crucifixion events. So what we've had is that Jesus has been tried, convicted, and sentenced to die. And so today we're going to look at the execution of Jesus. And we'll first of all look at the pre-execution or pre-crucifixion events in verse 27. And uh, we're going to notice how he is insulted. Okay, So this is going to be events that surround insult. So look what it says in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor, that's Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium, which is an area, a general area, where uh, Pilate's headquarters was located in Jerusalem and also the soldiers' barracks. And that whole area was called the praetorium area, and there was sort of like an open courtyard. And they gathered the whole garrison around him. They bring in all the soldiers that are available. Now there are 600 soldiers stationed at Fort Antonio in southeast Jerusalem at this time. That's one-tenth of a legion of soldiers. So assuming that some are on duty and out there in the field, uh, the remainder come and they surround Jesus. And there's a reason for this is they want to mock Jesus. And so it says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Uh, Maybe one of the soldiers' robes, an old robe that was laying around that uh, was uh, dirty and uh, uh, maybe uh, torn and they weren't using it anymore. And they put this scarlet robe on him in verse 28. And then verse 29 says, And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Uh, a crown being a symbol of a king, but they are not, this crown isn't made of gold, it's made of long thorned briars. And they put this crown on his head. Now we don't know if the thorns were pointed inward, which is what we always think of when we see the blood running down, or whether the thorns were actually pointed outward to make it look like a crown. But what they're going to do is they're going to mock him because they do not believe that he is a king, but they put this crown on his head. It says in verse 29, and they put a reed in his hand, probably a bamboo Read, which the soldiers used uh, to beat people. It would be like a cop using his billy club to beat people. You see that, don't you? When a Sikh somebody takes out their cell phone camera and they get that picture, or the cop's uh, uh, you know patrol car camera catches them beating somebody. Well, the Romans beat people, and they used bamboo rods. And this is probably what they did. They probably took one of their bamboo reeds, and they stuck it in his hand as if he was a king with a scepter. But they're not, they don't believe he's a real king. They're turning him into a clown king, a clown prince, if you will. And then it goes on to say, And they bowed down the knee, as if he were a king, before him. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And so that's the what we're going to call the insults to Jesus. And now we move from insult to injury. Look what happens in verse 30. They spat on him. That's what they really thought of. 
And they took the reed from his hand, and they struck him, and the tense of this verb means they repeatedly struck him on his head. Now, he had already been flogged, and now he's being struck by the reed. So we go from insult to injury. And verse 31 says, And when they mocked him, they took the robe off and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Uh, you wonder why would adults do this to a person, don't you? But this is the contempt that the Romans had, first of all, for Jews. They did not like Jews. Because they felt the Jews had been given, the Roman soldiers felt the Jews had been given special privileges that other conquered people were not given. And they did not like this detail. Being stationed in Jerusalem, having to keep things in order for these despised Jews. And uh, so now they sort of take out all their frustrations. Can you imagine having to work the Passover ship for a week long dealing with this? And all their frustrations come out on Jesus. And so it says they led him away to be crucified. And they followed the longest route. In other words, from the praetorium to the place of execution, they follow the longest route. And the reason for that is they want everybody in the city to see what's happening to this person to drive the fear of Rome into them lest they think they want to rebel against Rome. And when a prisoner was condemned to die, he was forced to carry a crossbar, the bar where his hands were going to be nailed, uh, on his shoulders to the place of execution. It was very heavy. The vertical post upon which the crucifixion took, uh, took place, was permanently fixed in the ground. And so when you reach the place of execution, all they would do is put the crossbar over and put the prisoner up on that crossbar. So uh, you know, he's, he's beaten down, and he's having to carry this cross. Verse 32 says, And as they came out, out of what? Out of the city. Because the crucifixion is going to take place beyond the city limits. They found a man named Simon of Cyrene. And him they compelled to bear the cross. And so here's the scene. They're coming out of the city. Uh, and you have all these soldiers and Jesus carrying the cross and the crowds cheering. And as they're coming out of the city, a man named Simon is coming into the city. He's from Cyrene. That means that he's from North Africa. The, day we, the part of North Africa that they would call Libya. If you want to know what Simon the Cyrene looked like? He probably looked like Gaddafi. Remember Gaddafi before he was killed? That's his complexion. That's what he looks like. He's likely a Jew from North Africa coming into the city to celebrate Passover. And they meet at the city gate. You talk about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And the soldiers compel him to carry the cross. Because Jesus is totally weakened. He's been up 30 hours straight. He's been in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was went through an emotional experience and the scripture says that he bled blood. It was so bad. It was an agonizing experience. He's been brought before the religious leaders and tried from midnight to 6 in the morning. He hasn't had any sleep for 30 hours or so. He's brought before Pontius Pilate. He's been flogged. He's been beaten over the head. He's been mocked. 
he has to carry this heavy crossbar and he's so weakened that as they get to the city gate he stumbles and falls and they soldiers conscript conscript Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross and then they march onward left, right, left, right come on now, we don't have all day let's move it along and Simon carries the cross to the place called Golgotha verse 33 says when they came to the place called Golgotha which is an Aramaic word that Matthew's readers 50 years later wouldn't understand so he has to explain what it means that is the place of a skull a hill outside the city where overlooked the city and if you look from a distance it looked like a human skull and that's where they come that's the place of execution and it says they gave him Jesus sour wine mingled with gall to drink but when he tasted it he would not drink now and it says and then they crucified now they get to this location and they give Jesus this drink, vinegar and gall, wine and gall. Do they do this to uh, kill the pain? Do they do this to revive him because he's so weak they need to revive him so they give him something to drink? Or do they give this to him as further punishment? Because here it says gall and in Psalm 69 this is a quote from Psalm 69 it appears that this gall is meant to inflict pain upon him. You don't drink gall, do you? Gall is like, what would this gall be like? What is it? Yeah. It's something bitter, right? It's something that you wouldn't want, and he tastes it. Just spits it out. You know, It's not something that you would want to drink, and so it says he tasted it, and he would not drink it. And then verse 35 goes on and says, and they crucified him. So now we go from the pre-crucifixion events to the crucifixion itself. And uh, it says they divided his garments by casting of lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Uh, this was a perk for working the death squad. Who wants to work the death squad? You know, occasionally out in Huntsville we'll have some criminal who's going to be put to death at midnight. You don't want to have to be in that room where they inject the poison. You don't want to be... That's not a good assignment, is it? Who wants to do that? So, they gave you a perk. And here was the perk. You could split up anything the person owned. So these guys, you finally, they, have, they deal with death, death squad all the time. So they finally said, well, let's just roll the dice. Winner takes all. So they roll the dice, the lot, probably little stones. It's some sort of indication, and one wins, and this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. One of Matthew's favorite words is the word fulfilled. He's constantly showing us that this was all in God's plan to begin with. This is not happenstance. And by the way, isn't it interesting? It just says, and they crucified him. They, the writer describes... The mocking in detail never describes the crucifixion. How many sermons have you heard where they describe? Oh, and then he, you know, did this, and then, and you couldn't breathe, and you know, and they give all the details. You'll never find in the Bible any detail ever about crucifixion. 
You didn't have to describe crucifixion to people who lived in the Roman Empire. They knew what it was like. Cicero said it was the worst form of torture imaginable. And the only people who were ever crucified were slaves and the worst criminals. Jesus was not a slave and he wasn't a common criminal. He was a free man. He wasn't a citizen, but he was a free man. And the only time a free man was ever crucified was if for the crime of treason, political sedition, to be a traitor to a nation. That's why we know what Jesus is being crucified for. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. Self-appointed. Not authorized by the Roman government. Not recognized by the Roman government. A guy who's trying to lead the Jewish people against the Roman government and get their freedom. So, Jesus is crucified. So, uh, and they would allow, you know, they would put these stakes in very public places so that when people walked by they would see it. They said, man, we don't ever want that to happen to us. It was the way that Rome controlled and dominated people, to drive the fear of Roman people. And then it says in verse 37, it's verse 36, sitting down they watched over him there. They want to make sure nobody comes and tries to get his body down before he dies or intervene or whatever. They kept this situation controlled. And verse 37 says, they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So that is the official charge. He is a political enemy against the state. A real troublemaker. We're going to get rid of him once and for all. We're going to do it in public. In the public, we're going to do it when great crowds are there and this will probably, you know, drive the fear of Rome into people for several more months. They'll never forget it. So that's what the purpose of this is. And then it goes on and says, verse 38, And there were two robbers. These are the common criminals. They were crucified with him. One on his right hand and one on his left hand. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Now we're going to get the reaction. As he's being crucified, we get the reaction. We're going to get the reaction of three groups. First of all, the public, the passerbys. It says, as those passed by, they blasphemed him. They just started cursing, you know, wagging their heads. They see him, and guess what? If you have soldiers guarding this prisoner who's on the cross, you're not going to walk by and say, oh, isn't that you're going to say something that's going to make sure that the soldiers know that you're not one of his disciples. And so they just blast him. Ah, you deserve to die. You know, and wag their heads. Ah, you know, like that kind of thing. Ah, he deserved it. And then, verse 40 says, and here's what they said. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is what Mel Gibson called the last temptation of Christ. The first temptation by Satan, bow down. The last temptation, come down. These people are mouthpieces for Satan. This is a temptation to get Jesus to beg for his life. Ask that his life be spared. Come down. Now, 
That phrase, son of God, means exactly the same thing as king. David was a king. He was called the son of God. You'll see how the words son of God and king are used interchangeably. So if you're Israel's king, just come on down. In other words, defeat the Roman Empire, get down off the cross. Okay, now group number two. Look at verse 42. Or verse 41, rather. Likewise, the chief priest, also mock, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, Hey, he saved others. He cannot, he, he, he uh, himself, he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, see, there's the verse 40, if he's the son of God, look in verse 42, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he'll have him, for he said, I am the son of God. If he's really God's king, God's son, God would deliver him, wouldn't you? Look, if I had a son, would I deliver him if I could from danger? If he's God's representative, wouldn't God do it? Now notice in verse 43, the high priest and the scribes call him son of God, but in verse 42 they call him king of Israel. See, those terms are used interchangeably there, so you need to see that. So that is the second group that mocks him, insults him from the cross. And then the third group, verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They said exactly the same thing. All the charges are this. If you are who you say you are, king, if you are God's authorized and recognized representative of this nation, save yourself or ask God to rescue you, then we will believe you. Where are his defenders now? Do you see him? There are no defenders of Jesus. No one would defend someone being crucified, lest they end up being associated with their servant and may end up crucified themselves. He has no defenders at this point. God doesn't even defend him. They said. If you're God's son, ask him to save you. He will. God doesn't even defend him. And look how the next verse, notice, notice what it says in verse 45. It says this. Now, from the sixth hour into the ninth, that would be from 12 to 3, 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land for three hours uh, darkness fills the light. This is God's response. That's God's response. He doesn't do anything. In fact, He just causes darkness to come upon the face of the land. In verse 46, I, I believe that's God's response because look at what Jesus says in 46. At about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama shimbaktani. That is, my God, my God, why have you what? See, that's how Jesus interprets this. Even God's forsaken. He is in a literally in a state of darkness. There's no answer. Why have you forsaken me? There is absolutely no response from God. Just dead silence from God. Now, when he says Eli, Eli, there is some misunderstanding. Look at verse 47. Some who stood there. <coughs> 
when they heard it, said, this man is calling for Elijah. He said, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? They're thinking he's saying Elijah. They're thinking he's slurring his words. Or maybe they have all bad hearing like I do and Jim Ray. I don't think that's the case. I think they think that Jesus is either slurring his words or he is so weak he's hallucinating and he's, he's calling out for Elijah to save him. Some Jews believe that Elijah would come before God set up his kingdom. And maybe Jesus is hallucinating. Maybe he thinks he's who he is, says he is, calls out for Elijah. But that's not happening either. So there's some misunderstanding. They think he's saying Elijah. Okay. And then verse 48, it's very interesting. It says this, Immediately one of them, that's just a bystander there, See, verse 47, some of those who stood by. One of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And uh, they probably think he's hallucinating that somebody just comes up and just gives him something to drink. Probably an act of compassion. A nobody. We don't even know who that person is. He <laughs> doesn't even mention the name. But the Bible mentions the person. Here's a person that sees the state he's in and reaches up and gives him something to drink. God recognizes that person. God knows that person's name. He knows every act of compassion you've ever committed, whether anyone else recognizes you or not. So I, I like this person. In my opinion, this is a hero right here. And then, as he does that, we know that was an act of compassion because in verse 49 we get this reaction. The rest, ah, let him alone. Yeah. Don't be kind to this character. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And with that, it says, verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice again after saying Eli. And uh, it said he yielded up his spirit. Uh, the word spirit there is pneuma, and it can also mean breath. He, uh, he gave up his breath. He inspired once, and then he gave it up. He expired, and there was not another breath taken in. And just like that, he died. This is Matthew's account of the crucifixion. So we had pre-crucifixion events, crucifixion, and now post-crucifixion events. Look at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Just like that. That has to be God's doing. It could have been two veils. There's a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, which was 40 foot high in the temple of Jerusalem. I'm mean, going to be a big ladder to get up there and try to start carrying it down from the top to bottom. This was a supernatural happening. That veil was six inches wide, made of lamb's skin. And the moment Jesus expires, suddenly this curtain is just ripped into, just like that. That was definitely a sign from God. If it was that curtain, it could mean that we were no longer separated from God, but now we all have access to God. But there was another curtain, and that was a curtain that went between the wall of the Jews, the court of the Jews, and the court of the Gentiles. They were separate in the temple. 
It could have been that curtain that was torn, that veil that was torn, which means that now Jews and Gentiles in Christ are equal. And, you know, I'm not going to say which one it is, but there's arguments for both, and I think you'll see why that there is a good argument that this could be the wall or the veil or the curtain that hung between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews as we look on at this. But if you look at it in context, <clears throat> this could be a sign, the first sign that the temple is being judged. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? <laughs> Not one stone will be standing. And they say, whoa. Well, guess what? As soon as he dies, something's destroyed immediately. <laughs> first thing that's destroyed is the, is the veil. That's sort of like a precursor of judgment to come upon that temple. So that's just a thought uh, we should consider. And then verse 52 says, second thing happened, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. Now this would be a localized earthquake. And the graves were opened. Look at this. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, who had died, were raised. If the destruction of the curtain is a precursor of the judgment on the temple and the nation of Israel, then this opening of the graves and people coming out of it could be a prelude to the final resurrection when the kingdom of God comes. I think it is a prelude. Because if you look at verse 52, it doesn't say everybody came out. It says the graves were opened and many of the bodies, no, not all the bodies, just some of the bodies. It's like it's a prelude to a future event, a future resurrection. And coming out of the graves, notice this, when they came out. They came out after his resurrection. They went into the holy city, that would be Jerusalem, and they appeared to many people. Now these are the two hardest verses maybe in the Gospel of Matthew. How do you interpret people coming out of the graves when Jesus dies? and walked with him into Jerusalem, and seen by many. Notice it says their bodies came out. It wasn't their spirits. I was doing, read a lot of commentaries this week, and uh, they pointed to uh, an event that happened when Antony and Cleopatra died. Uh, remember Cleopatra? And, and uh, after they died, they said they saw the ghost of dead people walking through the city. Well, this isn't ghost of anything. These are bodies. And this leads to 10,000 questions that can't be answered. You know, who are these people? Uh, did they die again? They were raised? Did they die? Did they go up into heaven when Jesus ascended into heaven? Uh, we don't know. In verse 52, or verse 50, it says, verse 53, rather, it says, uh, they were raised, and after his resurrection, in verse 53. The word, the Greek word here for resurrection is only used once in the entire Bible, and it's this time. So it seems like it may be some sort of special category. We just can't answer these questions. But I know they could be seen, because it says they appeared in verse 53 to many people. But we just don't know exactly what this means. But at least is a precursor to a future resurrection. It says that the graves were open in verse 52. And then 53 it says, coming out of the grave. So we know that these are people who were dead and in graves. There is an instance back in 23 where graves or tombs are mentioned. And I thought I would just 
flip you over there to uh, Matthew 23. Just showed this to you. Um, this is where Jesus is uh, eating a meal with the Pharisees and the scribes. And this is where he gives all of his woes. Remember where he says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes. Remember all those woes that we dealt with? And uh, in verse 29, it says this, woe, this is Matthew 23, 29, woe means judgment to you scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, claim to be God's representatives, bunch of hypocrites. Your life isn't consistent with your claim. Because you build tombs. Why are they hypocrites? You build tombs of the prophets, and you build graves for prophets. You adorn the monuments of the righteous. That would be Old Testament prophets. You say, if we lived in the days of our father, we would have not have partaken with them in the blood of the prophets. Their forefathers killed the prophets. So well, if we lived back then, we wouldn't have done it. we built a nice, pretty grave for them, the prophets. We make sure their graves are taken care of. We're righteous people. Therefore, Jesus says, you are witnesses against yourself. You're just a bunch of lying hypocrites. That you are sons, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, you do the same thing. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Hey, there's still a little bit more to be filled up, a little bit more guilt that needs to come, and guess what? You're going to fill it up. You're going to kill prophets yourself. And guess who they're killing right now on the cross? They're killing Jesus. And so maybe these tombs that are opened up are the tombs of the Old Testament prophets whom their forefathers killed. And now they're killing one themselves, Jesus, whom they consider a false prophet, a false messiah. And his tomb opens up as well. And thus Jesus and the prophets are vindicated and these people are found guilty. Just a thought. I mean, I know it's a complicated thing to think through, but just a thought. So go back to Matthew 27. Let's look at that last verse that we're going to study for today. Verse 54. This is very interesting. So all these things happen. These are post-crucifixion events. So when the centurion and those who were with him, that would be the guards, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the King of Israel. Now, when Jesus' own people, the Jews, reject him as King, guess who accepts him as King? A Gentile. That's why I said, maybe that veil was the veil that separated Jews and Gentiles. Suddenly, it is a Gentile who recognizes Jesus as king. And they recognize Jesus as a king as he hangs on the cross. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Yeah, that takes a revelation, doesn't it? Remember Peter? He said, Peter, who do you say I am? Oh, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you. This comes from my Father from heaven. So here God reveals to this Gentile centurion and his friends that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way of worship is opened up to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. And think about what reprisals this Roman centurion will face 
who was charged with putting this guy to death, and now he's proclaiming him to really be the king of the Jews. That can cost the man his life. And for Matthew's audience, remember when we started way back at the beginning, we said Matthew was writing to a group of churches up north somewhere made up of Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish believers are having pressure put on them by their families and say, you're hanging around with Gentiles, huh? You're not supposed to be eating with Gentiles. And here Matthew is showing us, wait a second, when the Jews rejected Jesus right at the cross, it was a Gentile who accepted him and proclaimed him to be the king of the Jews. It's okay to have a relationship with Gentiles. And by the way, how about us? I don't think there's too many Jews in our class. It's the Gentiles. And here was the first man, a Gentile, who proclaimed Jesus to be the Son of God. And now we are in that great line of tradition, and we proclaim Jesus to be the Son of God. Next week, we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness in revealing to us that Jesus is the Son of God through your word. It takes a revelation. We thank you for this first Gentile who proclaimed Jesus the Son of God and Lord for 2,000 years since we've been proclaiming Jesus as Son of God. We thank you Lord for the crucifixion that this was not a happenstance. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. It was your plan from the beginning. Jesus being a lamb slain since the foundation of the world. So, Lord, thank you. Help us to be positive witnesses.